A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit KellyBlueBook.com to get the journey started. Welcome to a bonus episode of Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. I am your sole host today, Kate Shaw, and I'm happy to be able to bring you today a short bonus episode on a case the court will hear on November 9th, United States versus Vallejo Madero. At issue in the case is whether Congress's denial of SSI benefits to otherwise eligible citizens on the sole basis that they live in Puerto Rico violates equal protection. So to help us break down this case and some of the broader principles it implicates, I'm really happy to be joined today by two special guests, Neil Weir and Juan Perla. Neil is a civil rights lawyer and the founder of the organization Equally American, which does really important work fighting for equal rights for Americans living in U.S. territories. Uh, His organization, together with the ACLU and Demos and some other organizations, filed an amicus brief in Valle Madero. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. And I'm also joined today by Juan Perla, who's an appellate associate at Curtis Malay, uh, also importantly a graduate of Berkeley Law School and a former student of my co-host Melissa Murray. Melissa, so sorry she couldn't be here to record with us. Um, And importantly, one of the lawyers for the respondent in the case, Mr. Vallejo Madero. Uh, Juan, welcome to the podcast. So happy you could join us. Thank you for having me. So Juan, can you start by just telling us about your client, Mr. Vallejo Madero? Sure. Uh, Mr. Veo Madero is a U.S. citizen from Puerto Rico, and he moved to New York several years ago. Um, And while he was living there, he suffered a series of strokes that left him disabled and unable to support himself. Um, At that time, he sought the assistance of a nonprofit that helped him apply for SSI and opened a bank account in New York where he was able to, once he qualified, receive the payments directly into his account. Can I interrupt you for one sec? I should have defined this, but I didn't. What are SSI benefits? So SSI is the Supplemental Security Income. It's a benefit under the Social Security Act, and it's for uh, individuals who are disabled or aged and have very limited means to support themselves, either because they can't work and they don't have uh, a lot of assets. So the threshold is actually very low. I mean, these are the poorest of the poor uh, in terms of the eligibility to qualify for SSI. Great. Thank you. Okay. So he's living in New York. He applies for these benefits. What happens then? Yes. So about a year later, he decides that he's going to move to Puerto Rico to be closer to family, as you would expect anyone struggling with a disability to, to do. And um, he continued, unbeknownst to him, uh, that he had, unbeknownst to him, his move would Uh, disqualify him from continuing to receive these benefits. Um, But because he wasn't aware of this, he didn't report this to SSI and uh, instead continued to receive the payments directly into his uh, bank account in New York. Uh, A couple years later, fast forward, the government learns that he's still receiving SSI payments because he discloses this to a social security uh, agent at the office, at the SSI offices in Puerto Rico when he's applying for retirement benefits. And two months later, they send him a notice saying, 
that we are retroactively revoking your SSI benefits to zero. Um, and you know, you'll be getting more information from us about what that means for you. He never got anything more from the Social Security Administration, but instead the government came after him in court. And that's when they filed a lawsuit. Um, and in the complaint, they cited a, two grounds for jurisdiction. One, when the government sues you in civil court, but the other was a criminal statute that carried up to five years of imprisonment as a penalty. And with that in mind, you know, Ms. Surveyor Madero was unrepresented at the time and the government uh, met with him, an SSI agent without the presence of a lawyer, and had him sign a stipulation for consent judgment in which he would have agreed to take responsibility for uh, unlawfully collecting these payments and then being on the hook for paying back $100 a month, basically for the rest of his life, because with his income, he couldn't have paid any more um, or any quicker. And at that time, the government went back to the district court, filed the stipulation for consent judgment, uh, which all of this was happening around the same time that Puerto Rico was being hit by uh, very massive hurricanes. You remember Hurricane Irma, you know, just completely devastated the island. The district court judge took a look at this and said, you know what, I'm going to appoint pro bono counsel. And that's when we were able to get involved. We were able to take the case as pro bono counsel and immediately filed for a motion to withdraw the stipulation. The government accepted and agreed that that would be fine, but then responded by voluntarily moving to dismiss the, the uh, complaint without prejudice. We opposed, the district court agreed, and then we moved forward with briefing. The only legal issue that the parties agreed was remaining, which was Mr. Madero's defense to liability uh, on the grounds that it would be a violation of the Fifth Amendment, his due process, his uh, equal protection rights under the uh, due process clause of the Fifth Amendment um, to deny him the same SSI benefits that he would otherwise be entitled to on the mainland solely because he had moved to Puerto Rico. Okay, so that's just a great overview on. Thank you for that. Um, so, and just for, you know, listeners for whom this won't be familiar, the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution actually appears in the 14th Amendment, which just extends to states, not to the federal government. But as Juan just alluded to, the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause has been understood to contain an equal protection component, which entitles individuals raising constitutional claims against the federal government, just as they could against the state government, to make arguments that sound in equal protection principles. And it sounds like that's the argument um, that Mr. Vallejo Madero is making. So maybe I could ask you, Neil, to zoom out a little bit. So it sounds like the scheme that Juan is describing clearly and on its face treats U.S. citizens living in Puerto Rico differently from U.S. citizens living on the mainland United States um, for purposes of this SSI program. Um, how does the government defend doing that? And are there other ways in which the federal government treats individuals in Puerto Rico and other territories differently from the way it treats individuals living in the mainland United States? Yeah, the United States defenses uh, to why Congress denies SSI benefits strictly on the basis of place of residency um, really don't uh, come across very strongly in their briefing. One argument they make is this idea that residents of the territories have a different, a unique tax structure. But of course, someone receiving SSI benefits makes too little income to be paying federal income tax in the first place. In the lower courts, none of the reasons that the United States argued to justify this denial were accepted with the district court judge and a unanimous panel on the First Circuit ruling that there was no rational basis for denying 
SSI benefits in the territories based simply on place of residency. And this is a part of a broader framework where the United States Congress has kind of a grab bag of rights applying in different territories. So if you live in the U.S. territory of the Northern Mariana Islands, you actually are eligible for SSI benefits. If you live in Guam, which is just a few hundred miles south of the Northern Mariana Islands, you're suddenly not eligible. Um, some territories are eligible for food stamp SNAP benefits. Others aren't. The federal government also discriminates in programs like Medicaid, providing block grants and caps on these federal programs rather than providing aid on the same basis as they would in the states. And there's never been given a good reason for this, uh, which is, I think, why the United States has so far struggled in court to find judges that agree with them. Okay, so that's really helpful. And you mentioned rational basis. So, Juan, so, you know, as Neil just alluded to, you were successful, right, in the district court and in the court of appeals. Um, And in both instances, the lower courts found that the right way to scrutinize this distinction that the law draws was just rational basis review, um, but that the government couldn't even satisfy this deferential type of review, rational basis. You know, the government pointed, as it points in its briefs before the Supreme Court, to this, you know, basically tax-based rationale that federal tax law treats residents of territories differently from other Americans, and that justifies the differential treatment with respect to this benefits program. Um, but that just didn't fly. So so we'll, maybe we'll get to the sort of type of scrutiny in the Supreme Court question in a minute. But just in the lower courts, um, did you urge the court to use a higher standard of review? Was that rejected or did the courts just find, you know, we don't even need to get there because these justifications are so bad they fail even rational basis review? Yes, we did press the issue of uh, strict and heightened scrutiny in the lower courts. And the district court accepted that that might very well be the standard that should be applied. But nevertheless, as you said, concluded that even if you look at it at the the most deferential standard of rational basis review, there just was no rational basis to exclude uh, Puerto Rico residents from the program. Um, And the circuit court took a different approach. It considered itself to be bound by one of the key decisions that we're attacking here, the key precedent that we're attacking, um, the Harris decision in which the Supreme Court indicated that you could treat the territories differently so long as there was a rational basis. And the First Circuit panel said, well, we think we're bound by that, so we're going to apply rational basis review, and agreed with the district court that there just was no rational basis that had been advanced and that they couldn't conceive of any that would justify this irrational and arbitrary exclusion. So the federal government is unsuccessful in the district court and the court of appeals. Was there a question as to whether they would seek review in the Supreme Court at all? And, you know, was there an effort? I remember, obviously, when President Biden issued a statement that generated some press explaining that the Department of Justice was going to continue to press this argument in the Supreme Court, but that as a policy matter, his administration disagreed with the differential treatment. Um, What's the backstory uh, of that statement? Um, And, you know, what to the extent that you can reveal these things, what kinds of, you know, kind of advocacy efforts were you involved with to, to keep this out of the Supreme Court altogether, if in fact you were trying to, or maybe this was something you wanted to take to the Supreme Court, thinking that you actually, you know, had a good chance of getting a receptive audience because the arguments were just so strong? Well, we definitely think that this is worthwhile for the Supreme Court to take up. I think that the decisions that are on the books, not only the insular cases, but also the more recent, the Califano v. Gautier Torres and Harris v. Rosario, those SSI and welfare benefit type cases, um, it's time to revisit them. And, and we're certainly pleased that the Supreme Court you know, did not decide to summarily reverse the decision below as the government had asked and instead is hearing these on plenary review. Um, 
And as far as the back and forth as to, you know, wanting to take the case out of the Supreme Court altogether and just leave the First Circuit decision standing, I wasn't privy to a lot of what that was all about. But I think that there might have been a concern that uh, this court may not be as receptive to the arguments or perhaps that it isn't worthwhile to keep resisting them. Um, And certainly those are all worthwhile views. But to us, it really came down to our client and making sure that our client uh, was able to vindicate his rights to the fullest extent possible. Um, Neil, maybe I'll bring you in here just in terms of your organization engages in advocacy across a lot of different fronts and in a lot of different institutions. So what's happening while you're trying to get you know, the executive branch and maybe Congress as well to take up this question? Obviously, this is whatever the constitutional permissibility of this differential treatment is, certainly the government could choose not to treat Puerto Rico residents differently. Um, so have you been sort of working to change that treatment independently of this case? Yeah, so uh, going back to President Biden, one of the things that brought this up was during the presidential campaign, he responded to a tweet about the Department of Justice's decision to appeal the case to the Supreme Court saying, this ends when I am president. So he had made a promise uh, on the campaign trail um, that sounded like he would not continue defending these discriminatory laws. When push came to shove, his administration decided to continue the defense of these laws, issuing the same day that they filed their opening brief, a kind of strange statement uh, or very uh, uncommon statement saying that while we will continue defending these laws in court, we believe that the policies behind them are flawed uh, and just and that there can be no second class citizens in the United States. And so that really has, you know, this case has generated a conversation between all three branches um, where Congress is now considering extending these benefits, um, at these SSI benefits to residents of the territories, and in fact has included them in the current draft of the Build Back Better Act. Um, so this is an important conversation that all three branches of the federal government are having, and that's really going to come to a head uh, at oral argument and in the weeks that follow as, as Congress considers these issues. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, 
Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Okay, so maybe now let's pivot to the briefs and the case that pending before the Supreme Court. So start with the federal government. The government continues to take the position that rational basis is the way to review this classification. And it relies really heavily on these two just summary reversals, right, from like the late 70s, early 80s. Um, what, what, what do those cases actually stand for? And sort of can you talk a little bit about, you know, there is obviously a deep kind of stare decisis current in this case, right? The federal government seems to be saying there isn't sufficient reason to revisit um, those decisions. I'm putting that in air quotes because they're like not reasoned decisions. And, you know, you get the sense that there are these larger kind of stare decisis concerns somewhat animating the Department of Justice in pressing this view that, you know, no, no, you don't need to disturb these prior cases. Um, what, you know, what are those cases properly understood to stand for? And then maybe we could pivot to your brief, which argues that no, strict scrutiny is actually the right way to scrutinize, uh, this law, not rational basis. That's right. So, uh, the two cases, as I mentioned before, are Califano v. Gautier-Torres and Harris v. Rosario. And Califano was a right-to-travel case. There was a equal protection challenge at the district court level, but it wasn't pressed all the way up to the Supreme Court. So in that case, the Supreme Court took the appeal directly from the district court decision. And it decided to summarily reverse the district court on the issue of the right to travel. And basically saying in a sort of convoluted analysis that seems to misunderstand the program that the plaintiff in that case couldn't expect to receive, he lived in Connecticut before, a Connecticut benefit when he moved to Puerto Rico and that that was not encapsulated in the doctrine of the right to travel, assuming that the right to travel applied to Puerto Rico because it's a state. So that case is a bit confusing because SSI, which was the program at issue in that case, is not a Connecticut program. It's a federal program. So it raises different considerations. More tellingly, the court in a dropped a footnote basically saying, you know, there was an equal protection challenge. We think that this passes a rational basis review because Puerto Rico um, doesn't contribute to the federal treasury. Um, it would be too costly to extend the program to them and it would potentially disrupt their local economy if we did so. Um, and then it cited for the proposition that Congress can treat Puerto Rico differently, the insular cases and the insular cases uh, holding called the incorporation doctrine, which basically says that Puerto Rico is, quote unquote, not a part of the United States. Um, then fast forward a few years and we get to Harris v. Rosario, where it was a different program, a state block program, also welfare benefits, but not directly from the government to the individual. And that was an equal protection challenge. And basically there, again, in a summary reversal directly from the district court opinion, the court said, you know, we kind of looked at this in Califano and we agree that these three justifications that we advanced in Califano um, apply here. And so we're not going to uh, make any kind of changes. And in that decision, they cite the territories clause for the proposition that you can 
discriminate against the territories it, so long as there is a rational basis. And those are the two decisions that have basically provided these summary decisions issued without oral argument, without merits briefing, with dissent from some of the members of the court. Um, these are now the decisions that Congress relies on, supposedly, and that the government advances as having this sort of weighty precedential value, which is dubious just on its own because they were so thinly reasoned um, and also kind of incoherently reasoned. Um, and we, 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 of course, are arguing that that's just not even that should not even be the beginning point for this analysis. That's a great description. Um, and so but, you know, even if you were sort of writing on a blank slate, so taking those cases out of the picture for a moment, there is this kind of first principles question of how a law that discriminates against residents of Puerto Rico should be scrutinized under the Constitution, right, under equal protection principles. Um, and so, and I think your brief makes a really powerful argument. Maybe um, I'll want to ask you and then Neil bring you in too, because you make the argument also in your amicus brief. Why should this law be subject to strict scrutiny? We should look at this fresh. And if you do, you realize that this notion that you can treat what are known as so-called unincorporated territories, those territories that the insular cases said were foreign in a domestic sense, they were not part of the United States, because of the race and ancestry of the people who lived there. I mean, they weren't mincing words. It was very explicit, both the congressional actions that were being reviewed by the court in the insular cases, like the Foraker Act, which was, again, premised on the notion that the people that lived in Puerto Rico were uncivilized, savage races, alien races. Um, and then this notion continues to find its way into Congress's legislations with respect to Puerto Rico. And in this case in particular, the Social Security Act defines Puerto Rico as being, quote unquote, outside the United States, treating it like a foreign country. And that's the basis upon which Congress decided to exclude residents of Puerto Rico from SSI. So we think that the link in terms of a pattern of discrimination and the basis upon which Congress decided to exclude the territories can be traced directly. There's a straight line back to the insular cases, textually in the statute, um, as well as just this notion that Puerto Rico is foreign somehow. I'm just going to add one thing on the insular cases. And, um, you know, it's just these, these cases are decided by a court that shares a lot of membership with like the Plessy versus Ferguson court, right? It is, this is, and, and yet while Plessy is obviously decisively repudiated, the insular cases remain a part of our body of law. And as you just described, they are the underpinning of, even though the federal government, if I'm not mistaken, you know, disavows the actual holdings of the insular cases in its briefing in this case, it fully relies on the two cases you just described that themselves rely on the logic of the insular cases, as does the legislation, right, at issue, you know, in this case and in the other cases. And so, you know, it's a living, breathing part of our law. And that, I think, is just an important fact that people may not even be aware of um, and that is just important to, to drive home. That's exactly right. And, you know, the government is very careful not to completely reject the insular cases in their briefing here. They just basically say that they don't apply, that we shouldn't concern ourselves with the insular cases because those deal with what provisions of the Constitution apply, not with whether equal protection should be applied to the territories. Uh, the other point that we make is that historically, territories uh, were supposed to be held temporarily on the path to statehood. So the fact that 
the residents of the territories can't vote uh, constitutionally was only a temporary issue that would be resolved by them eventually being granted statehood and then voting uh, as citizens of states. But because of the insular cases, that path to statehood has been broken and territories are now held indefinitely without any real clear path towards independence or statehood. They're just in this indefinite state of political powerlessness in which they have no uh, political role through federal voting to affect the laws that govern them. So maybe that's a good point to pivot to, Neil. Frame this in strict scrutiny terms. Why do you argue and um, what is the argument that strict scrutiny actually should apply here? Yeah, as uh, every uh, law student knows, the famous footnote from Caroline Products um, about discrete and insular minorities. And, you know, if you looked up in a a legal dictionary, you might very well find uh, next to that a a picture of someone like Mr. Vallejo Madero, who... Uh, lives in an insular territory and does not have voting representation in the Congress that enacts the rules he must follow. And so this is a a paradigmatic example of uh, political powerlessness that the court has often looked to in um, granting greater scrutiny to federal laws that discriminate against politically marginalized groups. And and that certainly constitutes uh, those living in the territories. In addition, on top of that political powerlessness, and perhaps these things are related, um, the residents of the territories, 98% of them are racial or ethnic minorities. So in addition to all of the, the racist language in the insular cases and, and many of the statutes of that time, um, you have a situation today where these benefits are only being denied to a group of people who are overwhelmingly people of color, speak different languages, and again, that's you know, an area where the courts have, have exercised greater scrutiny. Um, going back to the insular cases, and it is interesting you know, the, what the United States has done here. I mean, they've said the insular cases are not relevant to the issues here. The members of Congress wrote a letter uh, calling on DOJ to go further and actually affirmatively disavow them to say, even if you think they're not relevant here, couldn't you say they should not be extended or that... They should not be part of our law today. You would have a hard time thinking, you know, if you looked at other cases like Korematsu, um, would the Department of Justice said, oh, Korematsu is not relevant here, but then not said anything about the merits of the approach that the court took in Korematsu. And this, again, is just another example of how marginalized citizens in the territory are that the U.S. Department of Justice, led by Attorney General Garland, under a Biden-Harris administration, won't even say anything against the insular cases. They'll just simply say they aren't relevant, but not actually disavow them and not actually say, you know, they should be overturned given the proper opportunity, but essentially continuing to put their stamp of approval on them. And that's pretty disturbing. Yeah, I'm reminded of, on the podcast, we've, we've mentioned a couple of times that Jessica Mendez Colbert, who was one of the lawyers in the case about the structure of the Puerto Rico Oversight Board a couple of terms ago, both in her briefing and explicitly in front of the court in the oral argument, said this court should overturn the insular cases. So they, you know, they've had the opportunity. Obviously, they did not do that in that case. I, I do wonder whether the federal government, what they'll say if pressed on that question in the oral argument. And, you know, you can't just say not relevant if they're really pinned down at it. I don't know what the position will be. Is there, I guess, in your estimation, a real chance that the court will take this opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think I think 
either your brief may flag this or, or maybe your piece in Slate, but that there's, there's this real tension between sort of originalism and commitment to retaining the insular cases. Is this an opportunity for the court to kind of resolve that tension? Yeah, I think the court should take whatever opportunity they have to put the insular cases in the dustbin of history alongside Plessy um, and, and other cases that have been overruled. Um, as you suggest, they've been very hesitant to do so, and, and that itself is, is problematic. Um, so whether or not they will probe there here, um, I guess we'll find out at oral argument. Um, but regardless what the Supreme Court says, uh, you know, the criticism is going to continue to amplify in legal academia, you know, Yale Law Journal, Columbia Law are having special issues on the insert cases in the territories. Um, you know, scholars have repudiated this kind of continued reliance on the insert cases, filed amicus briefs in support of them. And so there's a big push for the court to act here. Um, and I think ultimately uh, it's going to be a question of uh, when, not if, um, but we're going to have to continue fighting that battle until the justices really fix their own mistake. Uh, it's uh, the, the insert cases and the doctrine of territorial incorporation like the separate and equal doctrine of Plessy, these are judge-created doctrines. They're found nowhere in the Constitution, completely contrary to the text and history of the Constitution itself. The Constitution's an anti-colonial document, um, not one that embraces American colonialism. Um, and so uh, that's going to be, whether it's discussed at the oral argument or not, it's certainly going to be in the background of the case. And however the Supreme Court decides it and whatever actions uh, Congress takes uh, in the coming weeks and months. So, Juan, I want to give you the last word on this. What will you be looking for? What do you hope that the justices will most take away from the argument that you're presenting? And what would sort of an ideal outcome in this case in terms of the scrutiny? Obviously, you know, you want a win for your client. But um, there are obviously like really big constitutional principles and stakes here in addition to the very concrete stakes for Mr. Valle Madero. Um, So what ideally does an outcome in this case look like for you? I think what would be very uh, meaningful is if the court is willing to engage with the history behind this kind of disparate treatment of the territories, to not just look at the uh, current state of affairs or even at the state of affairs in 1972 when the SSI amendments were uh, passed and enacted, but to really take a closer look and say, okay, how did we get here? And what does that mean constitutionally for us? What does that mean uh, for this case? I think that would be meaningful. Of course, we would be uh, thrilled if the court agreed with us on strict and heightened scrutiny. We think we've provided the substance and the path to get there if the court wanted to go down that route. Um, We also think that there is a uh, narrower path for the court to affirm the First Circuit on rational basis review um, if, if they take that route. So, If they do, uh, again, I think it would be a a significant win if they say we're taking this case because we thought we wanted to lay out a new framework for how to look at these issues. We don't think Califano and Harris are very helpful. So here's how to do the analysis. In this case, rational basis doesn't apply, but leave open explicitly the possibility that strict or heightened scrutiny could be applicable in some future case with respect to another law. Either of those paths obviously would be great to have in this case. Great. All right. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, So Juan Perla and Neil Weir, thank you guys so much for joining us and shedding a ton of light on a really important case. Um, And best of luck with the argument. Thank you. That's all for this bonus episode. Thanks so much to Neil Weir and Juan Perla for making time to join us on a busy week. Thanks to our great producer, Melody Rowell, to Eddie Cooper for our music, and to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn how to become a Glow subscriber, please go to www.glowfm forward slash strict scrutiny. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 